in a way, I guess my professional interests in sleep and circadian rhythms are kind of played out in the rhythms of, of my own life as well. From CTSI, this is The Products of Pittsburgh, a show about the people in Pittsburgh, innovators, scientists, community leaders, and the remarkable stories behind how they came to be and the work they've produced. I'm Mike Flock. On the show today, we catch up with Dr. Dan Bicey, Professor of Psychiatry and Clinical and Translational Science at the University of Pittsburgh. Life. Is it linear or is it cyclical, circadian, and rhythmic? It may depend on who is answering and in what context. Circadian rhythms can be found in animals, plants, and even microbes. They are physical, mental, and behavioral changes that follow a cycle. Many people might associate these rhythms just with sleep, but they actually influence a whole range of bodily functions throughout each day and night. Dan Bicey has spent nearly 40 years studying these rhythms and has become one of the most impactful thought leaders in sleep medicine. He has made significant contributions in advancing circadian science, translating research into practice, and training the next generation. Yet before becoming a doctor and building a career at the University of Pittsburgh, Dan was a kid like any other. He grew up in a blue-collar family, one of four kids in Detroit, Michigan. Going to college, let alone being a doctor, was aspirational. Dan had an opportunity, captured the moment, and didn't let it slip away. Where did you grow up? Where are you originally from? I grew up right outside of Detroit, Michigan. So I'm, I'm a Detroiter. You know, Eminem had his famous movie, Eight Mile. I grew up on near Seven Mile Road, so I'm kind of more Detroit than Eminem. Um, but yeah, I grew up in Detroit at a time of decline in the city, actually. And I was there as a child during the race riots of 67 and then the Tigers World Championship of 68. So lots of ups and downs. Yeah. Your parents, were they working? What types of jobs or roles yeah, did they I, have? I'm actually from a very blue-collar background. My father was just a, a blue-collar worker in what was called lithography. It was printing before the age of computers, so uh, they would print advertisements for newspapers and magazines and things like that, and that business slowly went away, so he got a job, as many people in Detroit do, with one of the big three automakers. So he was uh, actually a security guard at Chrysler. And then eventually from there, got to be a corporate driver at Chrysler. So essentially uh, driving around the big wig executives in Detroit. And my mom was a stay-at-home mom with four kids. I guess uh, growing up again in, in a blue-collar background, being a doctor was something aspirational. For people. So that was somehow something that always seemed like a long shot, but a dream to have. So when you were in high school, did you have any particular jobs or things that you had you were working on at that time before going on and, and going to college? Oh, yeah. So I, I kind of I worked one way or other pretty much all, all through high school. One of my first jobs was working in a library, actually shelving books and cleaning up in a library and I don't know later went on to some odd jobs actually toward the end of high school years a friend of mine and I did some house painting and uh, actually somebody that we were working with got us a, a job doing industrial paintings so yeah interesting summer job was 
painting acid storage tanks uh, <laughs> in an industrial yard in, in Detroit. So yeah, these, the, wow. these huge tanks on, on stilts that were uh, filled with muriatic acid and things. Uh, so they, they needed to be painted with Rust-Oleum every once in a while. So we were doing that and going in in the morning in a light fog of acid uh, made me realize that that was not something that I would like to do for the rest of my life. How did you decide what you wanted to do when you ended up going into in, college and deciding yeah. on a particular major? What was that and how did you decide on that? Well, for me, surprisingly, there was very little decision making or, or agonizing uh, going on. Um, at, at the time that I went to College, people did not apply to 20, 30, or 50 places. And uh, basically, I, I only applied to one place, which was the University of Michigan, which was, you know, I knew it was a good school. And um, I didn't see going out of state anywhere as likely option financially. So I applied to the University of Michigan. And on the application form, at that time, applications were actually written out by hand. And there was a, an application form and there was a box on the application for something called the Interflex program, which stood for Integrated Flexible Pre-Medical Medical Program. And uh, basically what this program was is uh, at the time, six-year medical education programs were gaining popularity and they would integrate your undergraduate and medical school education. So I checked off the, the, the box, went through the application process, got an interview, and was admitted to that program. So at the time, essentially, that I was accepted to college, I was also accepted to medical school. So all of my decisions were taken care of for me. At the end of my first year of college, I had essentially my first field placement externship. So the way that they did it in Mich at Michigan was that for six weeks at the end of your freshman year, you would go somewhere in more rural Michigan so I went to a doctor to live with a doctor and his family in Otsego, Michigan, which you've probably never heard of. Otsego is uh, an exurb of Kalamazoo, which you may also have never heard of, but it's in Western Michigan, very small uh, community. And uh, I just shadowed the doctor. So you were shadowing a doctor, but you said you also lived with them? Yeah, that was pretty common. So the Interflex program that I was talking about had only 50 students per year. So they were able to arrange placements for all 50 students with primary care physicians in the state of Michigan. And uh, yeah, the most common thing was that because these were pretty rural locations, we would just live there. The most convenient thing was, it wasn't unusual for me, but in many cases, yeah, people just kind of lived with the doctor and his family. Are there any memories or unique experiences from your training that you still remember this day or still sticks with you? I think back on my college and medical school career, I think one of the most important courses that I ever had was an English class that was called uh, The Fantastic in Literature. And it was kind of about speculative fiction and, and science fiction. But the important thing about it was that it was a huge class at the University of Michigan, hundreds and hundreds of people in it. And the grading in the class was based solely on one thing. And the one thing was that every week you had to read the assigned book and you had to write a one-page essay. If you wrote more than one page, they wouldn't read it. And every essay was just graded as plus, minus, or check. 
And what it taught me through re repeated practices, writing week after week, a one page essay, it taught me that you have to be able to communicate your ideas efficiently and effectively in a short space of time. I think it's kind of ironic in some sense that in a standard grant application, the most important part of the entire application is called the specific aims page. And in NIH, you have exactly one page for the specific aims. It can't be longer than that. So what I was practicing doing in my English class in college turned out to be the single most important skill that I have <laughs> today, which is learning how to communicate the goals and methods and importance of a scientific research study in a single page. In 1983, Dan came to University of Pittsburgh for his residency. He considered different disciplines, although was attracted to psychiatry as it fused his interest in the humanities and sciences. At the end of his residency, Dan applied for various postdoctoral fellowships around the country and had a few different opportunities to consider, but ultimately decided to stay at the University of Pittsburgh, where he has remained ever since and has become a leader in the science and practice of sleep. You sort of become this world-renowned expert in sleep and chronobiology. Why that particular specificity in terms of psychiatry? Like, why sleep? Yeah, so um, I think my, my interest in sleep and circadian rhythms was kind of a, a serendipitous thing. So I, I was in my final year of residency training. I was kind of interested in mood disorders and was doing kind of a junior attending uh, rotation on one of the mood disorders units. And a program that we had at the time was to have uh, visiting faculty come in, people from more the research side, people who would come in and talk to the clinical trainees and clinical faculty about their research. And one of the faculty who came in was a guy named David Jarrett. And he was a psychiatrist who was doing research on biological rhythms in patients with mood disorders. He was interested in particular in looking at uh, circadian rhythms of different hormones, cortisol and growth hormone. And when he talked to us, the thing that really struck me was that he was talking about how people exist not only in the physical world and in our mental worlds, but also in time. And what was just fascinating to me is the thought that everything about our physiology and our psychology changes with time and with time of day. But I'd never learned essentially anything about that in medical school. So it really just opened this door that, you know, again, people live in a physical world, but we also live in a temporal world. And that temporal world has very important ramifications on how we think, feel, behave, and function. So it really just kind of was an aha moment to me that I thought was, was really super interesting. And so I wanted to learn more. Started talking with uh, Dr. Jarrett and learned about a research fellowship that would be available um, in the Department of Psychiatry. So I thought that, that I would do a, a fellowship focusing on circadian rhythms. And then Dr. Jarrett introduced me to other people uh, in the department who were involved in sleep. And those people included Dr. Reynolds and, and Dr. Kupfer, the chair of the department at the time. And there again, it was just like this new world was opened to me that um, we spend a third of our lives sleeping 
and yet I had learned virtually nothing about it in medical school and uh, had never really considered the implications that it would have for psychiatric disorders and for health more generally. So it was really just because the topic seemed new and different and exciting and full of possibilities. That's really what attracted me to it. I think the other thing that should be said along the way is that the people that I had available to me as mentors were just outstanding in their jobs as mentors as well. So I was super fortunate to be able to work with uh, not only Dr. Jarrett, but Dr. Kupfer and Dr. Reynolds and another good colleague of mine over the years, Timothy Monk. So together they were kind of my circadian and sleep mentors, and uh, I continued working them f- with them for, for many years after. So from when you first got exposed and realized this is something that you really wanted to pursue to where you're at now, how has the field of sleep and circadian rhythms changed? I mean, in terms of you know, how much more knowledge about what is happening today relative to when you first kind of dove into it? Well, there's been just a huge, vast amount of change in the field. So when I first went into it, really sleep medicine as a clinical discipline was just in its very early stages. Uh, It was the first generation of people who studied sleep as a, a clinical discipline and the first generation of people who studied sleep and circadian rhythms as a scientific discipline as well. So during the course of my career and kind of more the clinical side, what I came to see and and came to be part of even was uh, sleep medicine developing as a clinical discipline so that we developed sleep medicine fellowship programs that are recognized by the ACGME. Uh, We developed a sleep subspecialty exam recognized by the American Board of Medical Specialties. We saw the development and kind of formalization of sleep medicine programs and sleep laboratories for diagnosing and treating people with sleep disorders. I saw kind of the development of a whole range of treatments for a whole range of sleep disorders. So all that on the clinical side. At the same time, again, the fields of sleep and circadian biology were just starting to take off. So in the course of my career, people mapped out the neural pathways that regulate sleep and wakefulness. People identified a set of genes that that control circadian rhythms, not just in our systemic physiology, but literally in every single cell of our bodies. We came to identify mutations in those genes that affect how people sleep and how their their circadian rhythms work. And there's just been an explosion of knowledge uh, regarding the neurobiology of sleep and circadian rhythms. So again, we, we understand those rhythms from every level of the entire person down to molecules within cells. So it's just been a time of tremendous explosion of knowledge. It's just so exciting because, you know, every week there's something new. It was really attractive to me because there was kind of this pioneer spirit. Um, Other medical disciplines, even including psychiatry, had been around for decades or centuries and sleep medicine was just beginning. I mean, it was being invented as I watched. So that was, you know, super exciting. And you obviously were a part of that process because something called the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index, for example, 
is being used across the world. Can you elaborate a little bit on what that is? Yeah, so um, my colleagues and I, some of the people that I had uh, previously mentioned, doctors Reynolds and, and Monk, had realized that, that we needed tools to measure people's sleep. And so they had come up with a list of questions to ask people about their sleep. And they had given it to a few hundred people, but really didn't kind of have a plan on how we were going to use that. So one of my first jobs as a postdoctoral fellow was to take the information that they had collected in this uh, kind of unstructured questionnaire and try to figure out some way of quantifying the information in it. And at the time, we knew that you could ask people a lot of things about their sleep. You could ask how long people sleep or what time they go to bed, but there was kind of no single metric that we had for measuring whether someone's sleep was good or poor in a, in a global sense. So the questions that my colleagues had administered to people had the kind of the raw materials. And so what I was able to do is to take those responses and kind of mold them into a format that could be reliably scored and essentially assign each person a score that would tell you something about how good or poor their sleep was on a more or less continuous scale. It was one of the first um, instruments devised to, to measure self-reported sleep in people. It's called the, the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index. And I think because we were able to sort of take a phenomenon as complex as sleep and in some ways reduce it to a single score for each person, it turned out that was a very useful thing in both research and clinical practice. So the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index came to be used by many different research and clinical groups across the, the world and has been used in hundreds or thousands of research studies as well. And ultimately, depending on how you count, it's the first or second most widely used self-reported scale for measuring and quantifying sleep quality worldwide. That's been translated into over 50 languages and used in people from adolescence to the oldest adults. In 1989, Dan, along with his colleagues, published the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index, a new instrument for psychiatric practice and research, which has become one of the most widely used study instruments. But that was just the beginning. Since then, he has also developed a daytime insomnia scale, the Insomnia Symptom Questionnaire, Pittsburgh Insomnia Rating Scale, and the Consensus Sleep Diary. All of these tools are publicly available for use with the appropriate permissions and has been key tools for researchers across the world. In 2017, the University of Pittsburgh Center for Sleep and Circadian Science was formally established, with Dan serving as the chair of the steering committee overseeing their activities that include research, education, and clinical care. Their website, sleep.pit.edu, showcases the range of projects and people all making an impact on health through sleep and circadian science. How do you think the pandemic and individuals who are working remotely is impacting sleep or, or cycles yeah. and things like that. I mean, I yeah. imagine there's a lot of people asking yeah. questions about that and, and trying to do there's, some sort of research. Yeah, and, there, there are starting to be some studies that have shown how sleep is affected by the, by the pandemic. And I think really there's a lot of variability. Early on, there were some people whose sleep was actually improved because they didn't have to be up for work or school at a particular time. And so they, they could sleep longer. And some people have, you know, have reported feeling better as a result of that. 
people have, have commented to me and question like, why is it that you know, like, I feel like I'm dreaming more. And uh, what's interesting is that when you sleep longer, one of the things that happens is that you tend to have more rapid eye movement sleep or dream sleep, right? It's just a consequence of sleeping longer because REM sleep tends to occur near the morning hours when we naturally wake up more, we tend to remember more of our dreams. So in that sense, you know, the pandemic has had some blessings for high school students as well, who always get shortchanged on sleep in the morning, having to wake up far too early to catch buses. Once the buses stopped, uh, kids could sleep in more. And that was probably a good thing. Now, the other side of the pandemic, though, is that there is a lot of anxiety, a tremendous amount of anxiety and, you know, worries of an economic nature and worries of political nature and interpersonal stress. All of those things have really caused an an increase uh, in anxiety and, and that for other people has taken a negative toll on their sleep as well. I think when people get out of their regular routines as well, the possibility of getting more sleep can actually go too far. That is, if we spend too long in bed, what happens is that our sleep tends to get more fragmented and more interrupted. So in a sense, the lack of schedules uh, can be, for some people, uh, a bad thing. I recommend to people that they try to stay on a schedule and most importantly, that they have a pretty regular wake-up time and not spend too much time in bed, not spend too little, but try to get it just right. The pandemic has altered the routines of many people. The timing of waking up, going to work, eating, and participating in social leisure activities have all been disrupted. Although everyone may not be affected the same way, everyone needs quality sleep for optimal mental and physical health. Stressful life events can impair sleep and circadian rhythms. During a time when sleep is particularly important, establishing a consistent sleep schedule and bedtime routine can help facilitate a sense of normalcy during abnormal times. Research shows that a person's quality of sleep can also be improved with exercise and spending some time outside in the natural light. What are any hobbies or interests you have outside of sleep research and chronobiology? I have been a longtime runner. Um, I like to hasten to add that I am far more persistent than good as a runner. I've never, I've never been particularly good, but I have been persistent. And my, my goal has been to, to uh, run for 50 years uh, rather than any specific distance. It's, it's time. And so uh, given that I started when I was 20, I have a ways yet to go, but I'm past the 80% mark. So I'm trying to meet that long-term goal of 50 years of running And actually, for me, running is a good thing for health, but it's also a a great thing for, I think, for your mind and and creativity. So I tell my trainees that a lot of times the best thing that I can do for a presentation or a paper or a grant that I'm working on, the best thing that I can do is go for a walk or a run because that's that's when the ideas come to me not when I'm uh, usually sitting in front of the computer trying to bang it out. You need some time and space for your brain to breathe, and uh, running is one way to do that. That's been a long-time interest. I'm also interested in reading different things. I tend to like fiction more than nonfiction, but, but read some of both. I like 
listening to music. I'm not, I don't consider myself a, a musician, but I like listening to all different sorts of music. And I sometimes pull together playlists for my friends and, and colleagues of different strange music selections that I've found in different places. If you could select one word to describe yourself, what would that one word be? Oh man, that's really hard. I think maybe persistent. I know that I'm not uh, the most brilliant person that I know. You know. I don't have as many skills and, and talents as a lot of other people, but I persist and that I think has stood me well. Uh, actually toying with kind of a, a second thing. So I, honestly, I think something that happens as you get more advanced in your career is that you gain an ability to see bigger pictures, right? So when I'm working with my trainees, they give me something to read. A common comment that I have for them is, uh, you know, more forest and fewer trees. Uh, so I think seeing the, the big picture and seeing the connections between things is something that as I've advanced in my career, I, I've been able to do. And I think that that has helped not only me, but has helped some of my colleagues as well to kind of uh, see how things are, are connected in ways that might not be immediately apparent initially. Now, the family that, that you've created, I think someone might have mentioned that you, correct me if I'm wrong, but with your grandfather. Is I that, am. So, so what's it like being now a grandfather? Well, everything that you've ever heard about being a grandparent is probably true. It's uh, like having the, the good parts of parenthood without the direct responsibility. It's just amazing to see, I guess the sounds trite, but kind of seeing the, the circle of life, which for me actually kind of feeds back into, <laughs> again, into my career interest too. So I'm interested in how things cycle and repeat and also change over time. Hmm. So this may seem a bit of a stretch, but um, in thinking about sleep, there are two kinds of processes that regulate sleep. One is, is kind of a linear process. That is, the longer you're awake, the sleepier you feel, right? So there's just a linear measure of time that affects our sleep. And the other thing is more of a rhythmic process, so the circadian process, that every 24 hours we kind of come back to sleep and to wakefulness. And so in a sense, you know, when you look at your life, there's kind of a, a similar motif that goes through that, that uh, there's kind of a linear process that, uh, you know, things change over time and kind of don't go back uh, the way they were. That's kind of like a, that linear process of aging, but there are also cycles that repeat. So, you know, your child, you grow up, you have children, they grow up, they have children. And so in a way, I guess my professional interests in sleep and circadian rhythms are kind of played out in the rhythms of, of my own life as well. And so being able to see life from the perspective of a child and as an adult and as a parent, now a grandparent, in some ways uh, kind of brings it all together for me in my personal life and, and my professional life. Dan Bicey, MD, Professor of Psychiatry and Clinical and Translational Science at the University of Pittsburgh and UPMC Endowed Chair in Sleep Medicine. And by the way, Dan has published well over 300 peer-reviewed articles, over 100 book chapters and reviews, 
and has mentored countless numbers of students and postdocs, paving the way for the next generation and continuing the cycle. That's our show. Thank you for listening to the Products of Pittsburgh. Be sure to check out our website at ctsi.pit.edu slash podcast to hear more episodes as well as learn about CTSI programs and services. I'm Mike Flock, along with Zach Ferguson. Until next time on the Products of Pittsburgh. Thank you.